Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and as always, former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. So England need a miracle if they're to stay in the Cricket World Cup. Winning five in a row isn't a miracle, but doing it in their current form would be. We'll look back at their record 229-run defeat to South Africa in Mumbai and hear from a disillusioned captain, Joss Butler. The Daily Mirror's Dean Wilson explains why he wasn't shocked to see England lose three of their first four matches. And we ask, what now for Matthew Mott and his team? Australia's opener David Warner has called for umpires to be made more accountable. Does he have a point? We'll also be joined by former Ireland batter Kath Dalton after she became the first woman uh, to land a coaching job in the PSL. Big bit of history for her and uh, for the women's game. We'll look back at some of the latest movements in county cricket as well. So plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to the Cricket Collective here on TalkSport 2. Army. I had a sense of disbelief. I mean, I was sitting in the Wangadi Stadium watching um, England. And from the moment they had South Africa four for one, Quinton de Kock drove the first ball from Reese Topley for four and then edged the second. It was downhill. That was the high point for England after two balls. They weren't just not in the game. They were shoved off the ball from then on. Yeah, they were. And it, it just seemed that I thought England with the, the new ball, you know, the first six overs. England, you know, bowled all right. You know, got a ball in the right area, got a ball of swing, two left armers, um, asked a few questions. And then all of a sudden, as soon as Rhys Topley's, you know, got the bang on the finger, and it's here, the muddled thinking, the, you know, the mixed, a little bit of mixed messaging, you know, leadership out there just looked as though, I said this after the game with John Norman on the following on, it was, it's a minute little thing. It had no bearing on the game whatsoever in result or, where the game was going, but even that decision to get Joe Root to bowl one ball just didn't make sense for the simple fact you you seen a few days earlier Virat Kohli bowled three balls because they knew that the sixth bowler 
possibly have to bowl 10 overs. But what the, the point I'm making, the reason I'm making it is, is that when you've got clear minds and you make clear decisions, you think quicker and everything that goes with it. And when you leave two all-rounders out, you've only got five bowling options with Joe Root as your sixth. So then just make him bowl one ball and he could have ended up bowling 9.1 overs. That just minute little thing does tell me that, you know, some you know, muddled thinking out there. So you're right. It went downhill literally from, you know, the first three or four overs. Um, and even still, 243 for five when David Miller walks out, you're thinking you got to knock them over for 320, 330. So for, to let them get 400 or have to chase 400, you could just see the wheels had blown off by the end of it. Yeah, I mean, Topley was, I thought, very brave, you know, going off and having his hands strapped up. And when he came back, I mean, the last 10 overs were, were it was embarrassing, honestly. It was 143 from uh, the last 10 overs and, and 84 from the last five. But I don't think Reese Topley would have been bowling all those full tosses if he could grip the ball properly. He clearly... He was uh, massively, massively inconvenienced. So uh, kudos to him for trying to come back anyway. But um, honestly, Harmi, uh, you know, in every other instance post-2015, it's been possible to say after every bad England performance, look, it only takes Jofra Archer to have a good spell or Owen Morgan to have one of his, or Jason Roy to make a cracking 70. Um, and there's there's always been a solution. You could always think, of a way back, and I'm struggling to currently this time. I can't disagree. I've been one of the ones that have been championing that they're very, very good. This team at putting disappointment behind them and just moving straight on to the next game and not letting any sort of hangovers of, of previous performances, good or bad, you know, get in the way of what comes next. That's what this team's been very, very good at in white ball cricket. So, but unfortunately. There's a few of these players we mentioned right at the top of the top of the World Cup, you know, in the preview. In 2019, they were at their summit. They were at their peak. A hell of a lot of these players. They're not now. And you can see that because their bodies are falling apart. And you can see that because the game's moving on. And unfortunately, England have, have stood still for a little bit. So that might be harsh words. It might be, you know, people might be disappointed to hear that. But unfortunately, these are our best players. I'm surely at the I'm sure at the end if we don't qualify we'll get the usual county cricket get blamed because we don't play 50 over meaningful cricket. That's a lot of nonsense. At the end of the day, this group and this team and you know Josh Butler to an extent is a bit like where Joe Root was when with the Test match squad a, a few years ago. That we prioritised 2020 cricket. We're world champions. We prioritised the Ashes and we should have won it. And 50 over cricket had to go on the back burner. And you can see by the way we are performing. That that's happened. So I think that is the sort of cold reality of where this is. These are still our best players. I still can't fathom out why you can't get, you have a white ball team without Mo and Ali in the subcontinent and India especially. So just different decisions like that really, I think, are, are costing and whether that's the selectors who are driving the team, Butler himself and not standing up for what he needs and what he wants and what he believes in. Matthew Mott not having a has he got the personality to stamp his authority on some superstars who have won the World Cup? I think when you put all that in the melting pot, I think it just shows the leadership qualities of Owen Morgan that he was so driven and determined that he was the man in charge. I'm not sensing that that there is that sort of leadership quality at the top of this game, but in this format, 
like what we have in the test match format. That's not a knock against Josh Butler. It's just, that's just his personality. But I think you can see that now as performances are going, that that's possibly what's happening in, in this minute in time in this group. Yeah, let's just be absolutely clear. England's fate is out of their hands now. They need to win the last five, and even that doesn't guarantee them a place in the semi-finals. Their run rate, net run rate, is absolutely woeful. They'll need other results to go their way. And, um, well, as you would expect, Josh Butler wasn't kidding himself afterwards. It certainly leaves us in a, a tough position. There's, there's no room for error from here on in. And that's going to be incredibly tough. But uh, you know, it's obvious that we're, we're not performing to our best. It's my job as captain and along with the rest of the team to, to work out you know, how we can get back to, to playing that brand of cricket and the, and the style and the, you know, not just only that, but sort of just playing to our potential and, and getting back to our best. So effort is a lot of, comes down to a lot of that. You know, a few things here and there which we need to keep challenging ourselves on and, and working on. And um, in this situation, that's all you can do. It certainly won't be anyone giving up or having those kind of thoughts. We'll just uh, have to dust ourselves down and stick our chests out and go again. And is this the toughest spot that you found yourself in as an international cricketer? Um, been in a few. Um, certainly experienced uh, plenty, I'd say, in in my career. So, which you know makes you feel like you're in the best possible place you could ever be to deal with something like this. So I've gone through lots of ups and downs in in my own career and in, in teams I've played in, and there's certainly challenges. But from challenges come opportunity, um, and that's certainly the the lens I'll be looking through. Josh Butler doing his very best, but you can tell by the tone in his voice that, uh, yeah, that that defeat really, really hurt. When things are going well, Harmy, um, nobody really take, pays much attention to the coach. But when things are going poorly, then suddenly the coach is in the spotlight. And there is talk that uh, Matthew Mott is very much a data-driven kind of coach. Um, I mean, he's prolific note-taker. He's always in his... Uh, you know, in his notepad, notebook, making making notes almost every ball sometimes, and uh, you just kind of get the sense that um, that some of the England players might be or are thinking we're people, we're not statistics, we're not numbers, we have a people person as much as we do a cricket statistics problem, and I think that he's if he's not already under pressure, he will be very soon. Yeah, he's he's always going to be under pressure because he's he's coaching the England cricket team and it's in the England cricket team that are world are world champions in both formats still at this moment in time. Probably won't be in three weeks' time, but at this minute in time, they're still world champions. And that walking into that dressing room with them star, you know, the players that are in there, the big characters that are in there, especially the way the test team, uh, you know, the, the boys from a test team have been, where it's been completely the opposite. Me, I'm a column. Yeah, you sometimes have to nudge him to see if he's awake, never mind making notes on every ball when he's watching a test match. So from that point of view, it might be and, and when things aren't going aren't going well, these all these things are magnified. So having in a more experienced group, an older group, and you are and they're not possibly comfortable with you know stats driven, the one to just play on the field and the one to play on on how they want to approach the game, rather than having basically been handheld. If that is what's happening, I'm not saying that is, but if that is what's happening, you can turn the group very, very quickly away from, or you can divide the group very, very quickly in a, in a different direction. Um, whether that's happening, I'm not so sure. Josh Butler, for me, is still the best leader that England could possibly have in the shortest format of the game. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say his name. A very, very good friend of mine who's a coach in English cricket and coached in international teams before. He had a great point to me. He said, I can't believe that Brendan McCullum's not 
in charge of the whole shooting match, in charge of the whole England cricket team, because that's what leadership is. That's how you direct and you move the ship forward. And then you get coaches that work off him in different formats. And maybe there is a case that we go back to one coach. Maybe there is a case that a stats-driven coach is probably better for a younger group, not an older group with the likes of Butler, Bairstow, Stokes, Root, Milan. These guys have gone through the ages. They've gone through the different types of cycles from 2015, 2019, and now. There's quite a few of them in there. Mo and Ali and Rashid. They don't need handheld. And, and if you have somebody like that, a little bit like when Peter Moores came in after Duncan Fletcher, you could see straight away that I didn't really get on too well with Moresley as a player to coach. As a person, I got on brilliant with him because he's a great man. But you could see as the longer that Peter Moores was going on, I'm going, well, he's going to fall out with him in a minute. I've already fallen out with him. He's next. There's a time where if he keeps going, he's coming in and knocking on his door. And unfortunately, it drives a dressing room in different directions. So is that happening? I don't know. I'm just speculating. But it doesn't help if you're, you're, you're trying to handheld with stats based driven when you've got some experienced cricketers in there who potentially just want to play their way. Okay, well, we heard Josh Butler um, answering the question from uh, Dean Wilson of the Daily Mirror. And uh, I took the opportunity of uh, catching up with Dino after the press conference because uh, he said that he wasn't surprised that England had made such a terrible start to the tournament. He said it was always coming. And we'll hear what uh, Dean said to me. Uh, in part two, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport Two with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Looking back at all the action from the Cricket World Cup. Okay, before we hear from Josh Butler again, I, uh, as I said, I, I headed straight over to Dean Wilson because I thought he was going to put his fingers straight through his laptop. Such was the ferocity with which he was typing his post-match report. I thought it was. I, I, I thought for a moment it was the sound of sharpening knives rather than a keyboard being attacked. And this is what Dino had to tell me. I do think that uh, this has been coming. Um, maybe not necessarily the quite the, the size of, of the defeat, but um, I just think that this England ODI side is, is not as good as, as they were. I, I don't think it's as good as they think they are. 50-over cricket has gone pretty much unloved by England almost from the day that they won the 50-over World Cup. They just haven't played much 50-over uh, cricket um, in the intervening in four years. And, you know, it's still, it takes time and effort and desire to build a team capable of winning a World Cup. It's why England haven't won a World Cup until 2019. And when you can see close up firsthand just how hard they had to work for that success and the hours and the, the, the strategic effort that they put into to, to getting there... None of that has been evident in the last four years. Uh, and I'm afraid that you know what we're seeing at the moment is a kind of direct consequence of that. So it's not about personnel then. Uh, I mean, it's not about uh, shuffling the 15-man pack that England have got here. It's a much, a much wider issue. You said that they don't play very much 50-over cricket. I, I couldn't believe when Gus Atkinson's only played six 50-over games in his career. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, they've got the talent. There's no, I'm not questioning that at all. But I, I do think 50-over cricket does take time to learn and we heard from even a player as talented and as sparkling as, as Harry Brook you know telling us um, that he's learning he's learning the game you know he, he's trying to work out how to play 50 over cricket at a 50 over cricket world cup you know which is which is quite remarkable really so that's what I mean in terms of the kind of the planning and, and the strategy and, and trying to get 
guys to gel together as a team. The team that England put out in the first game of the World Cup against New Zealand, it was the first time ever that those 11 players had played a 50-over game together. And, you know, I think that's a, a, a tricky thing to try and overcome. And, and it kind of leads to inconsistency. I think it leads to uh, a little bit of self-doubt. I think um, when you're not quite sure of, every, of, of your role or exactly where everyone kind of fits in, uh, that's when you get uh, perhaps a lack of, or a loss of confidence that England have been talking about and that we've certainly seen out on uh, on the middle of the park. So it's not a lack of talent, uh, that that's there, but it's it's all the other bits that go with it that, uh, that they're missing. That was Dean Wilson giving us his lowdown on uh, the England situation. And before we get uh, your thoughts on that, Harmy, let's hear again from Joss Butler. Uh, here's a stat that he wouldn't have known. It happened to be the third hottest day in Mumbai in the last 15 years. But you didn't need to know the temperature or you just had to walk out there. And I have to say that uh, when he decided to bowl first, there was a huge collective eyebrow raised. And I don't think South Africa were unhappy. Here's Butler. You always reflect after games and sort of question your decisions. Certainly with hindsight, the sort of physicality of, of that innings, potentially batting first would have... Would have been a, a better decision, but um, no, I'm not going to sort of sit here and question that in, in that sense and sort of say you should have done this or you should have done that. That's the decision I took at the time. Uh, I thought it was the right one, and, and I still believe if we were chasing you know, 340, 350, we would have done really well in those conditions. Yeah, a few things didn't go right, and yeah, physically it was it was tough. And like I said before, that with the you know it makes you question maybe in those kind of conditions, batting first may have been the right call at the toss. Well, um, it surprised everybody, and I think that he knows that he made a, a massive mistake there. The other thing, Harmy, that we need to mention is that he and Matthew Mott spent the whole week backing Chris Wokes, telling us that he had credit in the bank and that he's been a brilliant performer for England for a long time. And Matthew Mott said, we're not going to make wholesale changes. I don't know what your definition of wholesale is, but I think three changes um, comes fairly close to wholesale. And I, I think that there were a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes made I think they were going to play Wokes right up until the last minute. I think all of that backing during the week was genuine. So when we saw all of those changes and a completely different strategy for England with all the all-rounders on the bench, it, it seemed to, it, to me to smack a panic. And that's before the game started. Yeah, I, I, I said after the, the, the previous game to John in the following on that I would have made the two changes uh, that they made with Curran and Wokes. Uh, just for the simple... They just weren't playing very well. Uh, not, nothing against Sam or Chris, Chris's individuals. They just didn't bowl. They weren't bowling very well. And sometimes you can take them out. You can put them straight back in, you know. It, there's no harm in just giving them a game off and possibly giving them 10 days to, to get themselves into a little bit of rhythm in the nets or anything like that where there's less pressure on. And then you put them back in. Chris Roberts is going to have to come back in now. He has to come back in because of what's happened with Rhys Topley. So when I see England had won the toss and bowled first, I didn't have an issue with it because the only thing that you I couldn't sort of put into the equation because I wasn't there was the heat. Everything else smacked and told me that you chase we can chase at the Wankhede Stadium. I mean, it's not the biggest ground in the world. It has got a fast outfield. You can get a number on this ground, even like 340, 350, like Josh said. But the fact there was the heat, and that was huge, and that was massive. And when Reese Topley he went down and then you had to use your Joe Root, your extra bowler, put pressure on the bowlers to bowl at the death with the heat that was on. Then that was a factor why you, obviously it was the wrong decision to, to, bowl for, uh, to, to bowl first. But now 
you know, they're going to have to make wholesale changes again. Can't believe you cut, you haven't got Mo and Ali into this team. Who is going to come in for for Reece Topley? It's got to be Chris Wokes. You need somebody experienced to open the bowling. Brian can, Cass? Brian Cass will come into the squad, but I'm not sure you can't bring Brian Cass straight into the eleven because he doesn't open the bowling. Doesn't open the bowling for Durham. You know, we talked about talked about Gus Atkinson only playing six fifty over games before and they picked him for a World Cup. Just little different things. Harry Brooks hardly played fifty over cricket. He's learning in the World Cup. If you were to bring Brian Cass into the, the equation, you know, Rich Topley is our number one go to banking opening bowler. Cars has not done that for Durham. He doesn't do that for England. So he bowls in the middle overs. Then you then, personally at the start of time, I would open the ball with Mark Wood and said, right, try and go 95 mile an hour rockets from ball one and seeing if we can knock over a couple of wickets before batters get in. Do you go down that route? I wouldn't be averse to it, but you need a senior opening bowler. And that now has to be Chris Wokes. He stands up. He has to stand up now and, and be that opening bowler. So, I bring Brian Carson to the squad and possibly bring him into the team to bowl in their middle overs. But you can't just, he's not a ready-made replacement for Reese Topley because he doesn't open a bowling. And if he did come into that, that equation and they did give him the opening bowling, I tell you what, man, you think Dean Wilson was hitting his keypad. I'd be shouting from the rooftops because that would be the end of that. That would be the end of a lot of things for me when it comes to thinking in this group, because Give somebody a specific job which they do well and that they do on a regular basis. And that is not opening a bowl with somebody like Brian Cars. It, it is with Chris Wokes. You've got to get him to do it better. OK, we'll talk a little bit about England and their relationship with the 50-over game in a moment. But let's just talk about South Africa. I'm not sure that there's ever been such an enormous difference in performance in consecutive ODIs, certainly not in a World Cup. And there they are, losing to the Netherlands by 38 runs and then inflicting the heaviest score ever made against England in over 50 years of uh, of limited overs cricket and inflicting their heaviest ever defeat. So let's hear from Heinrich Klaassen, who's uh, made a habit of scoring 60 ball hundreds against England. He did, did the same thing against them in Kimberley a year ago. Um, and this is him after his uh, 67 ball innings of 109. It ranks up there with one of my better hundreds purely on the conditions that was out there. I really had to dig deep uh, mentally. Um, physically, I was not in a good space, but um, mentally I had to dig very deep there. And our walk-up performances, everyone obviously has got the tag over us, but we've played some good cricket in the World Cups. We've been unlucky and obviously we didn't execute on certain games, but if you go look at our games that we've played, we've played some very, very good cricket in World Cups, so not a surprise that we're playing good cricket um, we've been playing especially this group has been playing good cricket for the last three years now and we've been maturing nicely over the last three years and it's our time to really try to make a big statement for the world that South Africans are very good under pressure we've done it before and it's unfortunate that there wasn't as much luck because you need some luck as well Heinrich I don't know how well you remember the press conference you gave after the England game in Kimberley when uh, we'd never heard at least I had never heard a South African player speak so honestly about selection and you said they want us to play brave cricket and when we fail they drop us. As much as you've done on the field, do you remember that, that moment very well? Did, did it feel like you were being brave at the time? Definitely, um, I know Lucy gave me gears about that answer, um, but it was a time that we had to be honest and to be fair, since then and just a little bit before that, the selection has been consistent. 
and you can see it in the way the boys are playing and the same group of guys are still here you know, after a couple of years so the cons obviously the consistency was there it was more a message to the coaches to back us and um, when we do want to play brave cricket and we had some serious conversations about it and everything is sorted and the boys are on board and the coaches are on board and that's probably playing I believe good cricket at this moment. That was South African uh, powerhouse uh, batsman Heinrich Klaassen. Brad Hogg we spoke to, uh, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago? He tipped South Africa to go all the way. I said they'd find a way to mess it up. And um, we both, both still might be right because they did lose to the Netherlands after I said that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they have this limited game plan, Harmy. Um, I said that they had uh, trouble with the lower order, but how about Marco Janssen's 75 not out from 43 balls, six sixes. I mean, he was hitting some of them into the third tier of the stands. It was absolutely incredible. They are a juggernaut, aren't they? Honestly. I mean, if they, they, they've won by 102, 134 and 229 runs sandwiched with the Netherlands loss. I just think that when they play at their best, nobody's going to be able to live with them. It's just a question of whether they can play like that. And I, I mean, even India. I don't, I don't think India will be able to stand up to them when they play like that. No, not in the last 10 overs. If they go into the last 10 overs and they fulfil the way they can play in the last 10 overs, then that extra 30 runs is the difference between winning and losing the game. I think they can get 30 runs more than anybody else in, in this World Cup in the last 10 overs if they're all firing, if they all, if they're all go. The power that they've got. I mean, you mentioned Klassen and you mentioned Janssen. Miller didn't get it many, but he was, he's another one, a powerhouse at the back end. If them three can face the last 10 overs of the con of a of a 50 over contest, they win because they get 30 runs more than anybody else in the opposite that that's in this competition. So they've got that game plan, it's working for them. The only thing that's going to stop them is India. And India's going to stop New Zealand, they're going to stop Australia. India will eventually knock England out because they play them next week. England might beat Sri Lanka, but then they play India next Saturday. Um, and I think that might be the end for, for the England cricket team when that comes about, because at this minute in time, I can't see anybody stopping India. I really can't. But if if there are teams that can, South Africa on the perfect day could beat India. Really, They really could. I just still got this nagging thing in my mind that especially the likes of Sh now Hartik Pandya's out, the likes of Shami, Siraj, Bumra, if they hit them first 10 overs and they get it in the right spot and they knock two wickets over quickly, then all of a sudden that makes it a long, I would say, a, a longer day for South Africa. For me, that's how South Africa get beat. But if they get through that period, I tell you what, you'd back them against anybody in the last 10 overs if they if they play to their full potential. And it's brilliant to see. But unfortunately for me, South Africa might have the best chance of winning a World Cup here, so might New Zealand and so might Australia. But unfortunately, I just can't see India getting beat. I can't see them getting stopped. I think they could win the whole, win every game in the tournament. That, that's how well they're playing at this moment in time. But we've seen, like South Africa, India do tend to make a, make a mistake in the knockout stages. And teams that I've mentioned, I've got to hope that's going to happen. And if it is against South Africa, then South Africa got a great chance of going on and winning it. My question to you, man, is how do you get the captain back into that team? <laughs> That's a funny story, actually. You might know this, but Reza Hendricks got the tap on the shoulder five minutes before the toss. He had wow. no idea he was going to be playing. He had spent two hours in the hotel gym 
Teba Bavuma kept it to himself that he had this fever. He thought that he'd be good. He thought that he would sweat it off during the warm-ups. It got worse and worse and worse. And 10 minutes before the toss, he went to the coach and said, I can't play. So the coach went to Reza Hendricks and said, um, how do you feel about opening? Because you are. So absolutely amazing, amazing stuff. But yeah, Bavuma will come back in and Reza Hendricks will take his place on the bench. Um, that's, uh, I mean, he, he knew his role. He's a, he's a replacement and it's harsh. Um, you're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Uh, next up, we'll hear from Australian opener David Warner and ask if umpires need to be made more accountable. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, then I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can always download the podcast from the following on feed, now available, as always, via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Harmony, just before we talk about David Warner and uh, his, some would say, whinge, some would say constructive criticism about umpires and their public accountability. Is England cricket and 50-over cricket a marriage on the rocks? Well, I don't think it's just England cricket. I think it's world cricket's relationship with 50-over. 50-overs is is definitely on the rocks. I think England's is a little bit more on the rocks than what quite a few other nations are because the amount of cricket we play in... There will be the inevitable county cricket stuff and we've, we've talked about it for ages and they go... Well, we, we change the system in 50-over cricket, we'll 
Brit and FA Cup style competition. We'll go back to a Benzer and Hedges 50 over cricket competition and knockout stage. That'll make us better in 50 over cricket. It won't. It won't. It definitely won't. At the end of the day, no matter what we do at county level, our players don't play 50 over cricket. So there's no way if you change it, if you change it back to the old Benzer and Hedges or the Nat West stairs, which was five group games and a quarter final, semi-final final. Be totally irrelevant because the likes of Ben Stokes, Johnny Besto, Joe Root, etc., won't be playing because the other don't play for their counties. So we've got to we've got to be realistic about fifty over cricket. Unfortunately, it's been left behind in the world game and the world stage. We have not prepared very well in getting to where we need to on this tournament. That's nothing to do with fifty over cricket. We've prioritised other things. Like I said before, T Twenty, we're world champions. Red ball cricket. We should have won the Ashes. We prioritised that. We didn't prioritise 50 over cricket, and that's where we are at this minute in time. Unfortunately, because of our calendar and the way we we play cricket, in our obviously our summer and then in our winter, you know these boys are constantly playing cricket. So to try and prioritise all three formats, I think, is nearly impossible. So one has to fall by the wayside every now and again. And unfortunately, these are our best players. These are the, the the superstars that won the World Cup for us, but unfortunately, they're not playing as well as you would like they would like to. And I think that's fair criticism. And I think because of because of the pressure and everything that's going on, it they the, the might have sort of the fallen off the summit that got them to the position that they were in in 2019. They prepared brilliantly for 2019, and it was a shambles this year. Unfortunately, that's where we are in the tournament. They'll say we'll still, they'll say that we can still qualify till next week. And then next week's show, we can have an even bigger run. But 50 over cricket, for me, has been left behind on the back burner for all nations. I just think, unfortunately, we have had a lot of things go against us. Decision-making, team selection, form, availability. And I think when you put all that in the melting pot, that's why we're why only Afghanistan are bottom and we're second bottom in the group at this minute in time. Talking of decision-making, um, let's move on to the subject of umpires then. David Warner made a fabulous 160 against uh, Pakistan, but he did take time out to uh, have a, a wee rant of his own about his dismissal, which actually was a decision made by the third umpire. And I think what riled Warner, well, clearly what riled him, was that there were two umpires' calls um, out of the three decisions that made by the third umpire. Anyway, he took it upon himself to um, have a go at the on-field umpire who'd given him out in the first place uh, and and called for for more accountability. And he says, if we have our averages and our performances up on the big screen for the whole world to see, the umpires should have the same. We should have their percentage of success rate. This is what, what David Warner had to say. There's a lot to say, I think, in terms of um, what I'd like to see. This probably won't get across, but players' stats go up on the board as you walk out to bat. When they announce the umpires and they come up on screen, I'd love to see their stats come up on the up board as well because we see that in NRL. I know this is a world game, but NRL shows those stats. I think the NFL shows those stats. It's a great um, thing for the spectators to see that as well. Obviously, players get dropped for poor performances. It's never explained to us about how or what goes on with the um the panel as well so it's just an indicator just to so you, you know we check up there sometimes and go okay oh gee i'm only averaging that now okay but it's just little things that show the spectators of what it's you know it's not easy so you know you can explain where it's not easy why it's not easy and then when good decisions are made 
and they can explain it. So I just think it's something that could be explored. There has to be some accountability. And at the end of the day, if you get a decision wrong, just accept it and apologise. Like it's, players aren't going to bite your head off. The umpires aren't going to bite your head off if you if you ask them the question. They're generally pretty honest. You see it in the NRL with the bunkers. Sometimes they get absolute stinkers. Um, and then you know some umpires don't umpire the next game. So we don't know what goes on in their system. We just got to play the game and, and let that play out how they do it. That was uh, David Warner speaking after his dismissal against Sri Lanka. And uh, for those of you uninitiated, the NRL is the National Rugby League. Um, so the reason we've included that, Harmi, is because we all want you to translate it. What's he on about? The translated, oh boy, we've missed David Warner in the runs, haven't we? It's like KP back in my day. Whenever he got runs, you're thinking, oh, there's, there's an absolute, there's a gem coming here. Kev's coming out with something brilliant and David Warner didn't disappoint. In this situation, has he got a point? Do you want to see accountability to, to umpires? The one thing I do know for sure is, well, he's, he's always been talked about as not very bright as David Warner, but you're having to go at an umpire, umpire unit who will stick together in the middle of a World Cup. The next time you get hit on a pad, even if it's umpire's call, you're going. Your history, David Warner, they are gonna, they're going to fire you like you'd not believe. Because you can't just, you can't come out. And, and as much as you want to say that, I can say it. Manners, you can say it. But unfortunately, players on the field, I'm not saying it's, it's a lack of respect thing, but you just can't say it. You know, we want to have it over here in the, in the football. And they now want to hear what the referees are saying when it comes to it. I just think sometimes if you get a shocker, you get a shocker. The third umpire is there to bail the man in the middle out. And at, at the end of the day, the man in the middle, did he have a shocker? Because... Technology backed him up. It was it was umpire's call, and he you, you know if if the umpire gives you out in the field, that's it, you're done. So, no, not for me. I think leave the umpires alone. We either do a very very good job at managing the game and keeping the game pushed on. And unfortunately, people do make mistakes. You know, umpire's call is still out. The ball is still hitting the stumps, David Warner. But you know, like I said before, you got 100. What did he get? 166. First time he scored runs for a while. There's been some pepped up frustration going on in that brain of David Warner's and it's eventually come out with an absolute beauty. Good on you, pal. <laughs> it was interesting to see that 71-year-old Daryl Hare came out of, uh, he's been in retirement a long time, but he came out in the media and said uh, that umpiring cricket is the hardest job in the world and that David Warner is a sour crybaby and he just needs to get on with it. All right, let's move on. <laughs> good old Daryl Hare. You can rely on a good comment from him as much as you can from David Warner. Just very quickly, does this World Cup feel a little bit underwhelming to you? And not referring to England's very underwhelming performance, but the lack of close finishes and I mean, the two biggest talking points are England losing to Afghanistan and South Africa losing to the Netherlands so far, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you're right. I think it has been underwhelming. I think uh, whether, the, whether it's a format, the way the, the, the sort of group stage works, I'm not so sure. Maybe it's the interest, the lack of interest in 50 over cricket. People not think it's sort of, you know, the, the cool game anymore because of the shortest format now in 2020 and the excitement. Really. I think we've seen a lot of a lot of games fall flat in that middle period or completely fast forward because of teams not understanding how to play their middle their middle overs because you know they're because of the, the the amount of T20 cricket that, that these guys play around the world now but I agree I think it has been underwhelming and I, but I think it was always going to be until you got to the business end you know the last three group games and then the knockout 
hopefully we'll we'll see more and more closer games as there's more pressure coming onto the and in, into the tournament. Um, the one thing I will be sort of top notch will be the two knockout games in the final because by the way they're playing now, the teams these sides India, Pakistan, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand. There's probably four from five there. They're all playing some good cricket. And if they get when they get to that knockout stage, I think there'll be some belting games. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. Now, Kath Dalton became very popular very quickly as part of the Talksport 2 commentary team, but she had bigger fish to fry. And my goodness me, has she fried them? First woman to land a coaching job in the PSL uh, after being named fast bowling coach of the Multan Sultans. Many, many congratulations. It is absolutely fabulous. Sami and I have done a number of um, first woman two stories um, regarding umpires. and, uh, and But my goodness, especially in Pakistan, breeding ground of, of fast bowlers. It's just, it really does feel groundbreaking achievement for you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Manners. It's uh, been an exciting opportunity. It's been a crazy week, as you can imagine. Um, I've had a lot of support, which... You never know with these things whether you're going to get a huge amount of support. So I've been very blessed and privileged with that. And just Ali Tareen, who's the owner of the Multan Sultans, I've known him for five years. Uh, been out to Pakistan twice. I worked with some great fast bowlers out there twice. And uh, this is just the icing on the cake. And as you said, Manners, hopefully it's not the first time that this is groundbreaking news. It is groundbreaking news, but hopefully this is opening the door now for more female coaches um, to take roles on like this. Kath, talk us about your sort of role to the the fast bowling coach, you know, because from a day to day perspective, what are you? What have you been doing to get to this position? And then when you go into this role, what do you what do you see, or what do you want to try and get across? Is you know your method of of, of operation as a fast bowling coach? I think, Holly, my career wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. And I had a journey within fast bowling of learning sort of the biomechanics of how to bowl faster and straighter. And obviously, as a coach, you need to individualize that. That's not just, you know, a generic thing. So I've learned a huge amount over my time coaching. I've actually been coaching for 10 years. Um, I'm only 31 coming up, but I've been coaching for 10 years because I didn't get paid to play. So I had to find something else to do in that profession. And yeah, it's been it's been an experience. I've been over to India. I've worked with Deepak Chaha. That was incredible. Worked with uh, the Rajasthan Cricket Association there. I run an academy here with Ian Pont and Andre Nell as two of our star coaches. Um, I'm now beginning to become one of the star coaches, but it's taken a while. But I've learned a huge amount. And I think as a coach, you never stop learning. So biomechanics is one thing, but obviously bowling fast is one thing as well, as you know. But you have to land it in the right place. You have to have a lot of skill and control and you have to learn a lot of variations, particularly in T20 franchise cricket. You can't be one dimensional at all. Kath, I'm always the one that gets to ask uh, the questions concerning the elephant in the room, uh, the questions that Harmi doesn't want to ask. So so I'll ask you, what what is your technique? And this isn't anything to do with, with Pakistan or the Multan Sultans. This is just men in general. What is your approach to the stubborn misogynists who don't like to be coached, especially as a fiery fast bowler by a woman. How, how, how do you handle that? To be honest, man, I haven't had an experience of that, which is a bit of a shock. To be, I thought potentially when I first went out to coach in India, even here in the UK, what, what they're going to be like being coached by a female. But what I found was 
if you have something to give a player that's going to enhance their performance, very often they don't mind where it's coming from. And if they know it's making them a better player, great. But I think it's really important you build a, a relationship first, like of trust and understanding with the player. You don't want to just dive in with loads of interventions straight away. So it doesn't matter who they are. Everybody wants to feel supported and welcomed and feel like they're part of something. So if you can add value to a player, particularly a fast bowler, they need a lot of love and support. I'm sure Harmy would agree. Um, yeah. It's a tough job. So they, they, they need a lot of that. Yeah, as a as a as a bowler, you you've got your own individual way and your own individual style. As a coach, you've got to somehow be, I think, a psychologist as well to get that bowler or that subject to believe in not only what you say, but at the end of the day, they might have their thoughts, but you've got your you you can see what they can't see. And for me, the best bowling coaches are the ones that have interacted with the human element of the of the person, and then once they've built that trust. Then the bowling, you know, the bowling coach skills of it comes out the other side. How do you how do you go about that job? Like like Manna said, going into you know the male dressing room and, and talking to the individual about things that he might not want to talk about. Well, what I found is a lot of the fast bowlers seem to open up more to me than they do to the male coaches which is really interesting. They seem to, <laughs> I don't know why, they just seem to be more comfortable saying, look, Kath, I'm feeling quite nervous today. Uh, example, yesterday, one of our fast bowlers, he's mid-20s, played a lot of second eleven cricket, hasn't quite made it yet. And he just said, these are the things I'm feeling before I, before I play. And I don't know whether he, he, he hasn't opened up like that before to anybody else. So you're absolutely right. You have to build that, rapport between you and a player it can't just be you dive in as a coach and the second thing is that I think there's a misunderstanding between structure and style mm. structure is everybody has that everyone can get better if you take a batter you look at the fundamentals of their batting technique lots of people do things that are similar but they do it in their own style and as a coach you never want to take that away from someone but you're right Harmi you have to be very careful when you do an intervention it has to be right and you have to be open enough as a coach if somebody turns around and says, look, that doesn't feel right for me. You have to be, okay, this is another direction we can go in. It has it has to be that kind of relationship to really get the best out of somebody. Is this a stepping stone to head coach? I mean, that would be amazing. Uh, who knows? I didn't really think that this would happen as, as early as it has. Uh, I really wanted to do something like this, but I thought it might be another 10 years. So, yeah, head coach one day. That, if anyone's listening, that would be great. <laughs> Baby steps, Kath. You've made sacrifices along the way. I, I remember you, me and Harmy and, and a few others commentating on a on a 50-over game from TalkSport Towers. And, um, you know, it was a long day, so eight, eight and a half hours behind the microphone. And you were off to coach that night. Long hours, early mornings, late nights. I know how much you've you've put into this. Does it feel like, a goal achieved or as Harmi says the first of many I'm hoping the first of many to be honest it's uh, yeah you know every coach will say they're long hours they're long days and I think part of my job as a coach is it's a lot of giving so you try certainly my personality is to try and give as much as as you can it's always been about the player for me so this feels like a bit of a reward for that it feels a massive achievement um, my friends and family are very uh, are proud of me and my teammates uh, 
few of my teammates might start listening to me a little bit more now, to be honest. But yeah, let's let's hope it's the start of something very exciting and, and hopefully be back in TalkSport Towers with, with both of you at some point as well. Kath, congratulations. We've suddenly become ardent Multan Sultan fans. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll get you a shirt. Get you both a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, the excellent uh, Kath Dalton and the very, very best of luck to her. All right, a couple of minutes left. Um, and as always, we feature Durham, Durham feature almost every week because um, there are great things happening uh, at, at Durham and uh, they've been promoted. And a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we spoke to Ryan Campbell after they'd been promoted to Division One. And uh, he spoke uh, with some enthusiasm about building for a title challenge in the first season back in Division 1. This is um, what he told us then. I won't lie. I've been looking at that first division and seeing what we'd have to do. Obviously, the addition of Ackerman and Parkinson will be really important for us because not only does Ackerman bring the batting depth that we need, but also they both, obviously, one's a very good left-arm spinner, but Ackerman's right-arm off-spinner is really, really important for us. But what that does... It gives us the opportunity to bring in probably a fast bowler. When you start to look at, okay, it's rain, cast, pots, an overseas fast bowler who, if we get who we want to get, everyone will go, oh, that's good, as well as Parkinson. I think that's a bowling attack that can really go against the top teams. That was um, Durham coach Ryan Campbell. And breaking news, he's got the man he wanted. It's Scott Boland. Now then, just to say that anybody who saw him for the first time during the Ashes might have thought, what's all the fuss about? But he he was very much off colour. England targeted him. His first-class record is absolutely staggeringly good, as is his overall test record. And Ryan Campbell is absolutely right. I think that most people who, who do know a bit about Scott Boland will, will say, well, that's good. Absolutely. It's a great signing for Durham. An unbelievable signing for Durham. I know they've been chasing him for, for quite a while. I know there's one or two other counties who were after him and I think probably offered them a better deal than what Durham could because obviously we're not hugely financially you know, secure compared to what some of the bigger counties are. Um, but I think the Australian connection of Marcus North and, and Ryan Campbell and I think there's one or two former Durham bowlers who have played for Durham from Australia from Victoria had a, a little hand in telling Scott Boland it is a nice place to go and play cricket. It is a nice city to live in. And it's not as cold as what people will make out to be, but you you will enjoy being at Durham. And I think that was the, the you know the final you know the final thing that swayed Boland to sign for Durham. I think it's a the final piece in a title challenging jigsaw that I think Durham will be will be right up there next season. Mentioned the the others of um of note of the likes of Ackerman and, and Parkinson, but if you could you could add that even more because if you got Mark Wood and Ben Stokes to play, can you imagine a, a bone attack of Potts, Wood, Cars and Boland in a championship game? And that's that's unfortunately Ben Wren, who got sixty wickets and leading wicket taker last year. He might have to sit that one out to to bring in Mark Wood. But if you got that as a bowling attack, I think you're going back to two thousand eight nine when Durham had probably one of the best bowling attacks in the country. Um, even some like Ali Brown, I remember talking Ali Brown, that was probably one of the best first-class teams he had ever played against in 2008 and nine. Durham would be well on track to being the team that pushes Surrey all the way for the title. I was just about to say I wonder what the odds are, but honestly, uh, Surrey will be favourites to retain their title and go for a hat-trick, I'm sure. 
But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, knowledgeable bookmakers, and they are knowledgeable, <laughs> they do, yeah. do what they can. I wouldn't be surprised if Durham were second favourites, you know. I mean, ahead of Hampshire, Essex, that would make sense. Well, we're biased because we, we are, and obviously I'm Durham inside out and outside in. So for me, Durham are second favourites. If the bookies don't have them second favourites, within a first sort of couple of weeks of the season, I think they might be second favourites. I'd just like to, I'd love, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'd love to get that. If there is a one game where the test players are playing all in one match, the Surrey, that Surrey-Durham game would be would be sensational if you got them all to play um, leading into a test match. And that would be like a test match. Um, and that would probably give Durham the best chance of beating Surrey because of who would be available for on both sides. So I think it's been a great week for Durham, again, to get Boland. I think Australians coming over, there's rumours of, of Nathan Lyon possibly coming to play county cricket next year. If he does, that would be brilliant as well. But Durham have got their man, somebody they've been trying to get for quite a while now, and they've finally got him signed. And I think that might be the final piece of changing that silver trophy of the Division 2 to the gold one of Division 1 next year. It's been a season of uh, long-serving long-standing servants of of counties moving elsewhere after 10, 12, 14 years. Well, John Simpson is leaving Middlesex after 16 years to join Sussex on a two-year deal. Um, that really does feel like a major piece of furniture being moved out of Middlesex County Cricket Club. And Jake Ball has also signed for Somerset on a two-year deal after his release from Nottinghamshire. So quick word on those. Yeah, there's no surprise that players are moving, obviously, more frequently and more regularly. Jake Ball's been a good servant to Notts, as has John Simpson to, to Middlesex. You know, both had England recognition. You know, experienced players going into young dressing rooms. A lot of coaches now will, will want that, and their experience will be invaluable going into, especially Simpson going into the Sussex dressing room. I like that move. I really do. I think that's a good move for, for Paul Fabris and, and for Sussex to get somebody with Simpson's experience um, in that middle order. I think that's a good move for Sussex. Time for the final word, Harmy. And um, I'm going to give it to the world's bat manufacturers who are doing, I think, a slightly excessively good job. Just, I mean, I think we think about golf courses. We've spoken about this before. Club manufacturers, players hitting balls 400 yards down the track, and then, you know, manufacturers having to rein their technology in and golf courses being made to look longer. Well, England conceded 399 at the Wankity Stadium where I'm sitting now. And the, some of the sixes were landing 40, 50 yards over the boundary. There were eight. <laughs> That's right, exactly. And I just thought, you know, I, I just wondered yet again, just sitting, watching live, thinking... I wonder at some point whether the games administrators will actually go to the bat manufacturers and say, we need you to undo some of your good work <laughs> because we're seeing, we're seeing miss hits clear the boundary by, by 20 yards. Yeah, we are. We're seeing miss hits and you know, another one, you know, they were talking about over it and people running on and off with gloves, bats and things like that, you know, in short space of time and games lasting forever. That's another bugbear of, of ours when it comes to it. But you're talking about bats. I think the last word, the final word has to go to Grace Harris in Australia. If you haven't seen this, you've got to just check it out because she's playing, I think, in a, a BPL game. And it's one of the last, you know, the last balls of the over. Her bat is gone. It's smashed. She got 100 in the in the T20. And you could hear her on the stump mic going, I need a new bat. And then she's gone. 
it's all right. I'll face this ball. Get get on with it. And as the ball comes down, took one big mighty swipe. The bat makes contact with the ball. The ball goes ten rows back. It's gone for six. It's out the ground. The plane of the bat is about thirty yard circle at mid wicket, and she's still holding the handle. So fair play. She didn't want to slow the game down. She felt as though even with half a bat, I can still hit it for six. She gets a hundred and raises raises the uh, the handle of the bat to the dugout to say, "I'm not sure I can hit it for six with the handle, but I'll have a go." So good on you, Grace. Well done. <laughs> Confirms my point. Even broken, <laughs> even broken bats hitting ball for six. Okay, you've been listening to the Cricket Collective on Talksport Two with me, Neil Mantle, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And if you have missed any of the show or wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed. Now available via the free Talksport app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back at a similar time next week. Harmy and I will both be in India. Uh, perhaps to say goodbye to England. Uh, But for now, this has been another edition of the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you're keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 